Stephen is up and he's got four Bibles in his hands. And so, one's for him. He's got three Bibles in his hands, but five available. Anyway, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen can bring one right to your seat. Lori needs one. Stephen. If you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 21 this evening as we make our way through Isaiah. You guys are uh, just... It's a blessing to be here and to be in God's Word. And I know sometimes Isaiah can be like, oh man, judgment after judgment. And you guys are hanging in there. And so it's good. And, and you know, God will bless you for it. And we're looking at Isaiah chapter 21 through 23 this evening. Finishing up really the judgments or what's called the burdens against the nation surrounding Israel and Judah. And so uh, with that, let's... Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, again, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your word because, Lord, whenever we open your word, we know you have something to say, especially to our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon our night tonight, Lord God. We ask for uh, just a sense of your presence, Lord, as we look to you and your word. And even though some things are uh, painful to read about, Lord, it can be discouraging or, or just... Um, uh, we just see the hardness of men's hearts and that, that type of thing, Lord. We, we recognize that you're a great God and you have a plan and a purpose. And so, Lord, as we uh, just look to your word tonight, we just pray your blessing upon our time. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the kids that are downstairs and the teachings that the, the ladies and the teachers are doing downstairs and the uh, men's, not the men's, the, the youth and Gabe that's down there, Lord. Just pray your blessing upon them as well. And so we commit our night to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we've been looking at these burdens, these judgments coming against these nations surrounding Israel. And so far we've seen in chapter 15 and 16 was a judgment against Moab, present-day Jordan. We looked at chapter 17 and 18, the destruction of Damascus, the judgment of, against Ephraim and Ethiopia. Chapters 19 and 20, we looked at the judgment of Egypt itself. And now we pick it up in chapters 21 and the burden or the judgment against, we read there, uh, against the wilderness of the sea. Now, that would be Babylon itself. We know the word Babel means gateway to a god, and, and it sounds like the word Belial, which means confusion. We know that Babylon symbolizes the world system that man has built in defiance of God. Jerusalem, we have on one, one hand, and we have Babylon on the other, and there's just cont- uh, contrasting cities. One is a chosen city of God and the other is the wicked city of man. The city of God that will last forever, but the rebellious city of man will ultimately be destroyed. Now, it's clear that Isaiah's prophecies describe something more significant than just a city that that has its ups and downs over the years. As we've noted in the past, that throughout the book of Isaiah, there is the near fulfillment and there's the far fulfillment. Isaiah here in chapter 23 sees the fall of Babylon. But we also know this speaks of, again, the end times and during the time of the Great Tribulation where the religious, political, commercial Babylon will be destroyed. So with that in mind, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 21. The burden against the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunder plunders. Go up, O Elam, that's another name for Persia. Besiege, O Media, all its sighing I have made to cease. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. Now again, the wilderness of the sea, 
It's probably the area around the Persian Gulf, ancient Babylon. He says, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert from a terrible land. And, and I, I find it, really, he's given us the, the, the image of a desert storm. And I thought that's interesting because we gave that same title to, you know, that, that campaign we had there in Iraq of, of the desert storm. I say that because there are those that like to, to think that linked to this chapter to that operation of Desert Storm, but it's, it's not there. It's just someone, oh, look, Desert Storm, it's there, but it's not there. Um, but really, this is an incredible prophecy given about the destruction of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. At the time this was written, Elam or, or, or Persia and Media were just pipsqueak powers. Media was still a nomadic group of people cruising through the desert, and yet the Lord is saying, Babylon, this huge Babylon, this, this, this nation of Babylon is not going to be destroyed by Assyria, but rather by the Medes and the Persians. I mean, they would go, you got to be kidding me, reading that at that time. It seemed preposterous. Yes, exact, that's exactly what happened. We know Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, would stop the flow of the river that went into Babylon, and his men would actually go underneath the great walls there, where the rivers once flowed, and they would take the city by, by stealth. So here in the beginning of chapter 21, we see that Isaiah has been shown this amazing prophecy of, by the Lord of the destruction of Babylon. Now, God has used Babylon to judge and, and uh, judge Judah and Jerusalem because of her sin and idolatry and, and will take them into captivity. But now it's time for Babylon to get what's coming to them. And here's what's interesting. When Isaiah saw what was coming, God is sick. I mean, it, it, it grieved him. It was so terrible. He was distressed, the word says. In fact, verse 3 in the New Living Translation says this. Isaiah says, My stomach aches and burns with pain. Sharp pangs of anguish are upon me like those of a woman in labor. I grow faint when I hear what God is planning. I am too afraid to look. Whoa. I mean, you know, the realization that judgment was coming brought Isaiah no joy. He was like, oh man, get him, all right. It wasn't like that. The, 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 the destruction was so real to him that it tore himself, it tore himself up inside. So I, I'm praying that the Lord might do much more like that in our lives because sometimes we talk real kind of flippant about heaven and hell and, and without really being broken and hurting over the fact that the people that we care about are deeply and truly headed for judgment and an eternity apart from God. I mean, Isaiah's heart was broken. and said, sharp pangs of anguish are upon me like a woman in labor. When Jesus spoke of that same phrase, if you recall, you know, at the end times it's going to be like a woman in labor and how the last days are evil and it's going to increase and increase until the time has come for the great and terrible day of the Lord. I think if the Lord gave us a vision like he gave Isaiah of the great tribulation period, the destruction that's going to come into this Christ-rejecting civil world, I think it would make us sick to our stomachs. I mean, you read about it in Revelation, but actually see, you know, uh, hell stones the size of bowling balls coming down. You know, you get some, we get a hell storm here and a golf ball size hell, and it's pretty radical. But, but bowling balls and mountains falling down, seas turning to blood, people crying out to die and not being able to die. I think if we had an actual glimpse like Isaiah did, it would change us radically. Well, Isaiah continues, look at verse 4. My heart wavered, fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes. Anoint the shield. For thus has the Lord said to me. That the phrase, anoint the shield, they used to put oil on the shields. And so when they go to take a, a, another sword and, and, and stab at the shield, it would slide off 
And they set the, the word of anointing like a shield there. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. Then he cried, A lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. All my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Again, Isaiah is no way happy about predicting this awful suffering that the enemy of Israel would be exposed to. But it's interesting, Isaiah speaks so clearly as if he was actually there the night Babylon was invaded. I mean, he indicates here that it's suddenly in the midst of, of partying and, and, and eating and drinking, prepare the table, you know, eat and drink, suddenly turned into fear. And if you remember the story about that night that Babylon fell, they were, were eating and drinking. You know, Belshazzar was having this great feast with all of his, his you know, lords, and, and, they, and they felt so overconfident because they had these walls that were 300 feet high. They, had, they, were, they were 80 feet wide. They can have chariots you know, right next to each other going around the city. They, they thought, there's no way anybody can conquer us. We're Babylon. And even though her enemies surrounded them, they thought for sure no one can breach into the city. That's why they were partying. In their pride, they thought they were unconquerable. And as they're eating and drinking and getting drunk, Belshazzar orders the vessels that were taken by his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar and the seeds of Jerusalem brought in and they drank the wine out of these vessels of gold and, and silver that had been sanctified in the service of the Lord God in the temple. And, and then all of a sudden, just, just, it was just then that Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall. Literally. I mean, a hand appears and, and wrote the words, Many, many, tekel you far sin. Freaked him out. Belshazzar didn't know what it meant. Calls for Daniel in. And Daniel, in, in Daniel 5, 26 and 28, this is what he said to Belshazzar. This is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Again, amazing because Isaiah is describing the same scene. And again, Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, would stop the flow of the river into Babylon. His men would go underneath the great wall there and into the city by stealth and conquer Babylon. Now again, prophetically, let's move into the future now. During the Great Tribulation period, we know there's going to be this angel flying about in the sky. And according to Revelation 14.8, this angel is going to say, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So the last days, we see a similar scenario where this commercial religious Babylon, the economic religious systems of the world, will fall and will fail in the tribulation period because God, God's not into religious systems. You know, He's into relationships. He's not into, you know, that, that commercial stuff. He's into personal, real, vibrant relationships. Well, we leave Babylon now. We head to Duma, verse 11. Look at verse 11. The burden against Duma, he called to me out of Seir, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Now, Isaiah has, has a little bit play, a play on words here. The name Duma means silence. And in the Hebrew, the word is almost exactly the same as our English word, dumb. Kind of like dumb silence. Now, now Duma stands here as a cinnamon for the, not a cinnamon, but that's something you put on toast. 
synonym for the land of Edom, also called Seir. Seir means rough or hairy. So the burden against dumb, silent Edom, you know, that's rough and hairy. In other words, Edom was a land that was passed down by, by Jacob's brother Esau, which if you remember was, was Esau was what? Rough and hairy. Now in the Edomites' eyes, Esau was revered and he was immortalized as this great hunter and fearless fighter. He was, you know, this, this, you know, like a rugged mountain man and, and, and Edom was, was a rugged mountainous region inhabited by a, a nation of the Esau type mountain men that delighted in, in war, they delighted in the hunt, that type of guy. Now, being so closely related to Israel, you would have expected them to get along with Israel. But just the opposite was the case. Israel and the Edomites did not get along. And what we have here is, is a picture of these two watchmen on the wall, on one side and on the other. Now, as these watchmen are going back and forth upon the walls of these cities, they're near enough to hear each other speak and then to be heard. And just as God had predicted Babylon's invasion of Judah, there were many predictions of Edom's doom, but the Edomites completely ignored them. So this voice comes from Doom or Edom over to Isaiah, the other watchman. Verse 11, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? That is, how much of the night has gone? Edom wanted to know, the watchman of Edom wanted to know about the threat from Assyria. Are they going to come down? Where are they at? Are they going to attack us? And, and Isaiah says, the morning comes and also the night. Morning was coming because... Assyria would be defeated by God. We know that in the fields of Judah and not reach Edom, but the morning would not last because Babylon would take Assyria's place and that would be that. Edom would be done for. But, but, but notice that Isaiah adds an invitation consisting of just the three simple words. Return. Come back. He says, if you will inquire, inquire. Return, come back. In other words, turn back to the Lord. Repent and God will forgive you and, 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 and move in your lives and you can be saved. But they were dumb, silent and would not turn to the Lord despite the invitation. It's the same invitation that Jesus gave in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Edom would not heed the invitation and the nation was taken by Babylon, then by the Persians and finally by the Romans. Then after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, Edom vanished from the scene and that was that. No, people today still aren't listening. You know, come and you can have life. You, you, you don't have to go through this. Now verse 13. We read, The burden against Arabia says, In the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling companions of uh, Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tima, bring water to him who is thirsty. With the bread they met him who fled. For they fled from the sword, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, Within a year... According to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Keter will fail. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Keter, will be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. Now, Saudi Arabia was originally made up of two uh, major tribal families, those of Sheba and those of Dedan. In essence, this prophecy says that within one year, Arabia would be destroyed. And indeed, exactly, uh, you know, one year from the time that it was given in the year 716 B.C., Sargon the Assyrian took control of Arabia. Now, when we move ahead to the, uh, you know, into the book of Ezekiel, you read of the prophecies in Ezekiel 38 and 39 of the coming invasion of Israel by the Russians with their allies. It's important to note that Iran's there and, and, and Turkey's there and, and some of these other nations in there, but Saudi Arabia is not with them. 
In fact, Saudi Arabia is not listed with those other nations, of which the United States is perhaps one, because it speaks in Ezekiel 38.13 of the merchants of Tarsus, which is thought to be England, and, and the young lions can conceivably be, be the United States. And so what it is saying is that when the, this attack comes on Israel by Russia and Iran and their allies, Saudi Arabia, maybe the United States, you know, maybe England, you know, would, would, would say, have you come to take a spoil? Are you coming to, to, to do this? In other words, I can't believe you're doing this, but they're not going to do anything about it at all. Now, we know God intervenes and destroys five-sixths of this invading army, but, and God alone comes to the aid of, of Israel. But we see this all played out. And now what's interesting is we look at the major decisions that are being made in our State Department and our government today. These are the same nations that are all, you know, been predicted in the Bible long ago, taking center stage today. They're all falling into place. You see, you can't help but turn on the news and read about, you know, the band of immigrants. What are the nations? Some of those same nations that, that, that spoke about it in scriptures. And as we looked at, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the destruction of Damascus as prophesied in chapter 17. Now, when that happens, I, I think we're all going to be looking, looking for the Lord. You know, we'll be up on our rooftops. Well, chapter 22. Amen. <laughs> Excited about the Lord's return, see? Verse 1 says, the burden against the valley of vision. That refers to Jerusalem. So, since they were behaving just like their pagan, na- pagan neighbors, it was only right now that Isaiah should include them in this list of nations that God is going to judge. So now we're, we're, we're on to Jerusalem. Yes, in His mercy, the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrians, but He wouldn't deliver them from the Babylonians. So Isaiah starts this chapter by, by showing how freaked out they were because the Assyrians were coming. Look at verses 1 through 8. Actually, a little further than that. Start in verse 1. The burden against the valley of vision... What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. So he's saying, what happened? What's happened to your joy, Jerusalem? Verse 2. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down in perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen and Curran covered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage of the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the house of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. Isaiah here is speaking of the preparations that were going on at that moment. Jerusalem is preparing to, to, to defend themselves against the Assyrians. We know that, that they, the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom. Now they're coming down to Jerusalem. And so we know that Hezekiah was, was at that king at that time. And he's making all these preparations. He dug a, a, a tunnel, you know, Hezekiah's tunnel, some 1,700 feet from the spring of, of Gihon into the pool of Siloam. 
There was a major water supply of water for Jerusalem. And they wanted to make sure, man, if the Assyrians come in, we've got to make sure our water supply is protected. So he does the tunnel and did themselves to protect that. Verse 11 says, You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. And they've done all these things, but... And this is why Isaiah is getting on their case right now. He says, you've done all the fortifying of the walls. You've dug the pools. You've got the tunnel for water. But, verse 11, you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. In other words, who made the springs in the first place? Who put the source of water there for you to have in the first place? You're trying to fortify this all in your own ingenuity. But you haven't really looked to God for your help or for your guidance or for your protection or for your strength. I think we looked at this partly last Sunday. We can do the same thing instead of seeking the Lord in prayer and waiting and listening to the Lord through His Word. Why don't we just go for it? I I can do this and I can do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this first. And God's going, hey, look to me first. Maybe this isn't what I want you to do. Maybe I want you to do something else. And, and, And we're not looking to God and we're not looking for His strength or His guidance to help. And, and, and we can get freaked out at times. I think of the, you know, the, the, the preppers that are out there today, you know, the survivalists. They, they store up their, their, their foods and their guns and they're trying to prepare themselves for the worst and they're convinced that it's coming. You know, they're not seeking the Lord for provision or protection. They're not really trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in their own capacities. And so the prophet finds fault with them for not looking to God. Look at verse 12. So he says, And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, said the Lord God of hosts. So that just, man, God has warned them and warned them and warned them and saying, yeah, party on, you know, we're just going to have a good old time. And what, what is amazing is they truly did not see the danger they were in nor how low their spiritual condition had dropped. Isaiah said, man, you should have been humbled before the Lord, waiting upon Him with fasting and, and prayer and repentance. But instead, they said, oh, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. I mean, knowing that judgment is coming, but refusing to take it to their heart. So God says, oh yeah, look at verse 15. Thus said the Lord God of hosts, go, proceed to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, what have you here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulcher here. I see hews himself a sepulcher on high who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. So the Lord gets a little specific here. And he calls a man called Shebna was what we might call Hezekiah's secretary of the treasury. He's, he was a, you know, with Hezekiah during this time and and he's evidently very greedy and very crafty and very ambitious, using his office for personal gain and self-glorification. In fact, we know that he had this, this you know, a sepulcher here. You know, this, this, he built this grand mausoleum cut out of the limestone, you know, rock. And that's where, you know, where the kings of Judah would be buried. That's where he wanted to be buried as well. He wanted to be remembered and immortalized in the years to come. Building a legacy for himself. But God had other plans. Look at verse 17. He says, indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man. Now, this is Shebna. And will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariot shall be the shame of your master's house. 
So I'll drive you out of your office and from your position he will pull you down. Now again, this is one, the first step. God's coming in and saying, man, you guys aren't repenting. Okay, I'm going to start with your, your you know, secretary of the treasury. You know, this guy's going to be taken out. Shebna would be removed from office and carried into captivity only to die in a foreign land. Now his replacement we read about in verse 20. It says, then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. A shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. So just the opposite. Now we have Eliakim, a trustworthy man, loyal servant to Hezekiah, motivated by sincere love for his country and love for God and fear for God. And he would be handed the key of David Reed, which would be like the, the key of the, the royal treasury, you know. He would be given the authority to open it and close it, you know, as he saw fit. Now, what I love here is that we have a comparison between these two men, Shebna and Eliakim. Prophetically speaking, I think Shebna is a picture of the Antichrist, and Eliakim is a picture of Jesus Christ. The Antichrist, like Shebna, will have the keys taken from him and thrown into the bottomless pit, you know, locked forever. But verse 22, speaking of Jesus Christ, the key, he has a key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. You guys heard that before. Revelation 3, verse 7. And the angel to the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. That's why we say there's that immediate fulfillment and that faraway fulfillment. You look down prophetically and see this speaks of Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ would do and who Jesus Christ is. Isaiah continues in verse 23. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house. The offspring and the posterity. All vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. You know, Jesus Christ would be, be fastened with a nail in a secure place. A cross for our sins. Unlike Shebna, Jesus didn't build a sepulcher for himself. Rather, Jesus gave of himself with the cross of Calvary, and he couldn't be kept in a tomb, but had to rise. Couldn't hold him. Now, chapter 23, last chapter. Remember, 15 and 16, we looked at the destruction of Moab. 17 and 18, the destruction of Damascus and Ephraim. 19 and 20 was Egypt. 21 was Babylon. 22, judgment against Edom, Arabia, and Jerusalem. Now we come to the final uh, judgment, uh, 23, coming against the, the nations of around Israel, and that's the nation of Tyre, our, our present-day Lebanon. Look at verse 1. The burden against Tyre. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them, Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled. And on great waters, the grain of Shihor, the, the harvest of the river is her revenue. And she is a marketplace for the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. One commentator I read said that the men of the city of Tyre were so proficient in sailing on the ocean that there has been speculation that they actually reached the shores of North America. 
I don't know how they could find that out or figure that out, but, but what we do know is that, that Tyre had a powerful navy. And because they used their navy for, for, for commerce as well as for conquest, they grew very, very wealthy. Now, the destruction of this city would affect nations as far as Egypt and as far away as Tarshish because it was through the ships of Tyre that the merchants were, were, were sent. Big shipping industry here. But judgment is coming, and all that was going to change. Now, prophetically, this last city speaks of the world as a great commercial system where materialism is the main focus. It's all about money, all about attaining wealth. It's all about seeking, you know, passions and enjoyment without any restraint and having all kinds of luxury at our fingertips, yet at the same time forgetting about God. And that's what they were doing, you know, and... and, and you know, we know that the Bible says that Peter says all of this is going to be destroyed. It's all going to be gone. And that's what we see in this prophecy relating to the doom of Tyre. Isaiah sees the complete destruction, never achieve, to achieve its greatness again. And see, God seems to have it in for these, these large commercial systems, you know. He's not interested in men exploiting other men for their own profit. And, and, and he comes down pretty hard against Tyre because of its commercialism. Look at verse 6. It says, cross over to Tarshish. While you are in the inhabitants of the coastland, is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her far off to dwell, who has taken the counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring dishonor to the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Now, the, the word Tarshish there seems to be somewhat general term, certainly including Spain, maybe Great Britain, and again, because Tyre had been a hub of commerce or destruction, would affect all the countries in the same region. Verse 10, he goes on, Overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. Again, what the Lord is saying here is that the Tyre has become so prideful and so pompous that the Lord ordained it. It's going to be just, just scrapped like a rock, just destroyed. Verse 13, 13 through 17. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not Assyria, founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces, and brought it to ruin. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten seventy years According to the days of one king, at the end of 70 years, it will happen in Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kings of the world on the face of the earth. We know Babylon had existed for many centuries. But it never became a great world power until it was enlarged and taken over by the Assyrians long before Nebuchadnezzar's day. Once separated from Assyria, it eventually became the dominant power in the region west of the Euphrates, and Nebuchadnezzar came into power. And he was powerful. His, his, you know, Nebuchadnezzar seized Tyre. He partially destroyed it, carrying away many of the people into captivity. And God would use Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean army to accomplish this prophecy that we're reading about in the destruction of Tyre. And this would take place during the 70 years that Judah was taken captive by Babylon. And what we read here, but after the 70 years, 
And really, after the 70 years of the, uh, uh, and after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, a few years after that, the Medes and the Persians captured uh, Babylon. And at that time, Tyre was largely rebuilt. Though verse 17 says, she will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. In other words, she went right back to doing what she was doing before. She didn't learn a lesson. But in her last verse, there's hope. There's a future blessing predicted for it. It says, verse 18, her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently, sufficiently and for fine clothing. I believe what's it's saying, in, in other words, is that another day, there's a new day coming. A new city is going to be raised on the ruins of Tyre, and that will be subject to him who sits on the throne and will, who rules and reigns in righteousness. A thousand years, that will be Jesus Christ. And they will come, and they will bring gifts into Jerusalem, but this is predicted in, in Psalm 45, 12. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will, will seek your favor. So this proud, pompous city would be carried away into captivity. And yet the time is coming when her merchandise would be used to give honor to the Lord. You know, this, this speaks to me of God's incredible grace and mercy of her father, always ready to give his people another chance, chance after chance. You see, as we close our trek through these judgments, God has taught us some important lessons here. First, that he, He's in control of the nations of the world. And He can do with them whatever He pleases. Number two, that God judges the nations for the way they treat each other. Because you did this, I'm going to get you. And so He judges them for that. Then we know that God is a God of second chances. And if the people would have repented, God would have granted mercy. And finally, number four, God always gives a word of promise and hope to his people. You know, we read Babylon will, will fall, but God will care for Judah. Moab will, will not accept sanctuary from Jerusalem, but God will one day establish Messiah's throne there. Assyria and Egypt may be vowed enemies of the Jews, but one day the three nations are going to join together to glorify God during the millennium. Tyre will be destroyed, but one day she will serve the Lord. So no matter how frightening the national or international situation may become today, we can have peace because we know God is still on His throne. The nations may, may rage and plot against God, but according to Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall not hold them in derision. Listen, when the Lord's our Father, we've got nothing to worry about. He's watching out after us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight, Lord. We thank You for... Lord, even through me reading these... Uh, judgments that were coming, so much so that your servant Isaiah made, it, made him sick to his stomach. Lord, we see throughout this, Lord, your grace and your love for these people that if they would have just turned from their sin and repented, Lord, you would have, Lord, withheld your judgment. You would have saved them. But alas, their hearts were so hardened, Lord God. And, and Lord, we pray Lord, that our hearts would not be hard. And we pray for the people that are around us today, Lord, that seem to be in that same place. Lord, we've shared with them and they know the truth, Lord, but their hearts are so hard. We pray, Lord, that for softening of hearts, for, for those that we love, that we have been witnessing to, Lord, that they would just have the blinders off of their eyes, Lord, and they would see their need for a Savior. Lord, as Isaiah cried out, Lord, come to me, come to me, there is he's saying, Lord, if you just turn and come back, God will do that work. Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit, Lord, as we 
Go the remainder of our week, Lord. Give us those opportunities that we might glorify you with, Lord. I pray if there's any other needs in, in our fellowship tonight, Lord God, that you would move and work in a mighty way, Lord. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.